Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to have you here this morning. Excited to start a new work with you. I'm always excited to start a new book. We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, your favorite. Here's the fastest way to get there. Go to Matthew and turn left, and it's about four or five books. If you turn too fast, you will blow right by it. It's in that traffic jam of tiny little books in the Old Testament that always felt a little irrelevant to you, that you probably haven't spent a lot of time in it. That's where we're going to be. You might not know what a Habakkuk is, and that is understandable if you're new to the Bible. In fact, you might actually make it your whole life without ever hearing a sermon series on the book of Habakkuk. I know I have, Um, but he is a guy. To be more specific, he's a prophet. In fact, we're going to be a little bit more specific than that. He is what they call a minor prophet. Minor meaning the book is small, not that he is minor league, right? That's not how we look at the prophets all the way through that part of the Bible. These are small little books. I mean, this one clocks in at just barely over two blog posts. It's about 1,000 words. 0.17% of your Bible is that which we call Habakkuk or Habakkuk, if you're British and you like to be wrong about stuff. You could call it whatever you want. I think as small as it is, this might be one of the most relevant books for us. I might say this might be one of the more relevant books of the decade. And I don't say that lightly. But I think it's going to be helpful for you and me. And yes, the roads to the gospel story in this book are many. Habakkuk is a little bit of a, what I'd say, a mirror of the human soul. And it kind of is a reflection of some of the questions that we ask even if we're afraid to ask them out loud sometimes. And once again, and as I say in any book that we begin traveling through and sometimes throughout the book, let us just be amazed one more time at how unbelievably timeless your Bible is and how it approaches deep questions for today. I'm always thankful for the Lord that he gave us a book that travels with us. Um, This is going to be a book that's going to be helpful for those of us who are deconstructing from Christianity. Like it's going to be helpful for those of us who feel injured by God, maybe ignored a little bit by God, those who have run out of tears and watched the news and can't make sense of any of it. I think this is a helpful book for those who want answers, who need answers, and maybe a little tired of the pithy answers they get from friends and pastors. I think this is a helpful book for those who do not know how to voice prayers how to wait for an answer, or are even sure that prayer works at all. I think it's for those of us who enjoy God, but maybe not totally enjoy God. We understand the Lord, but also kind of can't make sense of him at all times. I think it's a book for you. It's a book for me, that's for sure. And Habakkuk's name, as many Names in the Bible has a level of significance to it. And the best that scholars can tell is it it has two different directions. And they're somewhat related and somewhat very diametrically opposed. It means embracer, one who hugs. And it also means one who wrestles or wrestler. And we get this, right? I feel like this all the time. We get what it means to embrace God and wrestle with God at the same time. In fact, the gospel story is, if anything, it's a story of one who embraces us even when we wrestle back with him and embrace the world instead. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start us through this walk through the book of Habakkuk, and we are going to get to chapter 
well, we're going to start at chapter 1, and we're going to end at verse 5 today. So this is probably the smallest amount of passage that we're going to cover in a Sunday. So if you have a Bible, Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, this is the word of the Lord for us today. It starts off this way, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And that's where we're going to stop, actually, even though he's beginning the answer, right? Because next week in this perplexing answer, it kind of invites its own separate level of controversy. It's going to be difficult next week. But what I want you to see here is that our wrestling prophet cannot bring into focus either God's timeline or his tolerance for a world that happens to be spinning out of control. Now, God is responding, as we saw in verse 5, but that's only after a long season of emotional prayer with no answer. Lots of prayer went forth and no answer. And again, we get this. How often have you wrestled with the Lord over something and then wrestled again with the fact that he's not answering you? It's just quiet. You pray, you pray, and nothing happens. You pray, you're emotional, you write it in your journal, you fast, you keep praying and nothing happens. You pray, you pray some more, and not, how many times has that happened for you? In fact, what are you dragging in here with you today that you've been wrestling with? Maybe you're in the middle of now of praying for something that it just seems like God is deaf or bored with you, but he's definitely not activating for you. What does it feel like? I mean, I hear Habakkuk just saying, how long are you going to make me stare at this injustice and this oppression? while you just stand idly by? How long? I mean, not only is society paralyzed from doing good, it seems to Habakkuk that God is paralyzed as well. Here's the thing. He's not an agnostic. He believes in God. Oh, he believes in the fullness of God, and yet he's looking at a broken world that's cratering under its own weight, and he doesn't know how to reconcile the books. He doesn't know how to make sense of any of it. Now, what's quirky about this book is Habakkuk is one of the prophetic books or one of the prophets that instead of prophesying over people and us having recorded words of it, he's actually just showing us a dialogue between him and the Lord himself. What's also quirky about this is that Habakkuk is mentioned nowhere else in history, anywhere. He doesn't show up in your Bible anymore. We don't have anything in history about this guy. There's no historical context. But that doesn't mean that he's insignificant, right? I mean, there... There is something, and I say this from time to time, and I know it sounds odd, there is something liberating to me about being camouflaged inside the greater work of God, being inconspicuous, being unremarkable. Again, in our cultural moment today where being invisible is a felt death for so many, social media has made it possible for everyone to be seen adored and applauded and liked, and loved, and followed. It generates remarkability about us. 
We're just afraid of being invisible. It's the people we are. There's a group, the Royal Society of Public Health in England. What they do every year is they rank the most destructive social media applications out there by the level of destruction that they do and topping out the top of the list every year, but especially the last three has been both Snapchat and Instagram. And this is what they say. It, it leads, those two specifically, lead to an increased feeling of anxiety, depression, and loneliness harming users' body image and triggering the fear of missing out, making them feel invisible. It's actually why Instagram initiated this function to hide likes so that you don't have to see the likes, how many people like or whether they like at all. Yet I've never met anyone to use that function, right? We have FOMO. We have a fear of being invisible, being basic. As my daughters tell me, being mid. That's a word now. Hear me when I say there's a real joy and a freedom at just being basic, being hidden away, camouflaged, tucked away in a much bigger story where you're not the star. I mean, look at, look at the story of John the Baptist. People rallied around him. They wanted to know, how do we announce you in a conference? Like, what do we put behind your name? How many lights do you need on you? But you always find him receding, right? Don't look at me. Fix your gaze on Christ, and then he just recedes. Or I've got like Gideon, the smallest of the smallest of the smallest, and yet God taps him. Or Amos. The only thing we know about him is he was a shepherd. That's what the Bible tells you. He was a shepherd. Or Mary, a tween, tapped by God. Or Peter. Over and over again, we see people showing up, playing their part, and the receding into the noise of history, no great lineage, nothing that would garner a second look. Listen, if your Bible teaches you anything, it's that anonymity is not insignificance. Anonymity is not insignificance. In fact, I think we're going to be shocked one day when we are in forever, hanging out with Christ, looking him in. Just, just as, as clearly as you look at me right now and I look at you, he'll be looking at us and we'll be looking at him. I think in that moment, when we meet the real movers and shakers, the superstars of human history, I think we'll be learning their names for the first time, a lot of them. Inconspicuous. This is valuable to me. Maybe it's valuable to some of you who you wake up, you show up, you clock in, you pull weeds in whatever broken garden you happen to work in, you go home, rinse and repeat, all while wondering if your life amounts to anything. Anything at all. Or if God even takes any interest in you. Or if there's any part you have to play. Friend, God is very good at affecting his providential plan through very basic people. And the world will never carve their names into statues. Ever. You see, because God values you and me so much, our value cannot be inflated anymore. Our stock price cannot go up. No value can be added to the value that you already have in God's eyes. And what does this mean? It means we're free to enjoy God. We're free to enjoy God. We're free from the prison of hunting visibility on this endless treadmill as the world finds itself. And this is the guy that's writing this. And, and although we don't know much about this guy, Habakkuk, we know where he fits into history. And it's an intriguing point in history. Judah, the southern kingdom, remember, just remind you, if you don't know much about Bible history, that's fine. Judah um, is part of what is called the southern kingdom. You have Israel, part of the northern kingdom. This is after the kingdom split, 
right? Judah's about to be sacked. Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been swept away. The Assyrians had already come in, grabbed them, carried them off. Now, the northern kingdom that had already been conquered, they had their own set of prophets. The, the Amos, Hosea, Micah, Jonah, that's who those guys were focusing on was the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, it's Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and they would prophesy over Judah's impending devastation. Now, Judah had done well for about 20 years. It had done well, real well, actually, back when Habakkuk was a kid. Incidentally, so was the king. You see, the king at the time and Habakkuk were about the same age, and they started to grow together because King Josiah, who was the king at the time, was a child king. He was made king when he was eight years old. Let that sink in, parents. If you've ever had an eight-year-old, I want you to imagine what that would be like. Or if you were an eight-year-old at one time, I want you to imagine what that would be like, right? I was real tired one night, and I was kind of laying my head back, and I was thinking, what would I have done as an eight-year-old? Trying to remember what life was like for me back then, this is what I would have done. I would have had a throne built for me made out of just the cherry and the orange Starburst candies, not the other two flavors that everyone throws away. I would have hired a guy just to go through all the bags in the land and make me a throne out of Starburst candy, and then I would have done away with all first and last names. Everyone has a nickname from here forward. Everyone, right? I would have abolished the NCAA. That would have been the third thing I would have done, right? I would have made everyone stop eating their chips outside their sandwich. From now on, everyone eats their chips inside the sandwich, right? Like we all are supposed to eat our chips. That's how an eight-year-old thinks. Not this guy, though. Not this guy. Now, we don't have a lot about how he grew from eight to about 24, 25, King Josiah, that is. But when he hit those young years, around 20, 24, he abolished idol worship from the land. I mean, if there was a throne, an altar, some statue, he would have it ground into dust, and then he would pour the dust over the graves of those who would sacrifice humans to false gods. This guy led Israel into revival and renewal. He was a fantastic king. Now, he died in battle about 20 years after that, about the age of 40. And the next four kings that came along, his sons and his son's sons, they deleted everything that he did, everything. They led the nation right back into moral madness, infecting everybody from the very top of society all the way down to your basic commoner, everything. Hey, America has had some revivals, hasn't it? Ever wonder what happened? Ever wonder what happened to those? The Great Awakening, the Azusa Street Revival, the Jesus Movement, Asbury. Northwest University actually did a lot of research on this, and they found that America has an awakening or revival about every 75 to 80 years. Right? And... Roughly in 1735, 1805, 1885, 1965, and they tend to last for about 20 years, interestingly enough, until what? Society begins to unravel all over again. What do we learn in this? Moral drift is in the nature of man. Moral drift, right? For every King Josiah that comes along, there will be rebels waiting to delete the work. History shows this. So what do we see in that? We need something more than a good king. We need something more. We need something better than even an, an excellent king. We need, we need the gospel. Even that alone is a harbinger of how much we need the gospel. See, what 
Habakkuk really wants in those first five verses is another cleansing revival, like the one he saw when he was a kid, like the one he saw when he was in his 20s. That's what he's really asking for. And apparently he's praying for a long time and not hearing anything back, right? That's why he says, how long shall I cry? How long are you going to stand there and just idly watch this? The mockery, the injustice, the oppression, how long exactly? Listen, I'll give the guy this. At least his heart breaks for society's retreat from God. Not just for society's sake, but also for the glory of God. That's, that's one thing that we see. His heart is not broken because tax brackets are more aggressive for joint filers, right? That's not breaking his heart or immigration or, or, or inflation. But it's because people are joyfully murdering their babies, they're abusing each other, and they're mocking God as fast as they possibly can. Quick question for you and me. When the moral fabric of society tears, do we weep? Do we find ourselves weeping and praying and weeping and praying? Here's what I know about myself. Here's what I, what I know about us. We can easily get dull and calloused, can't we? Because we are immersed in a broken culture and it drifts. And we just drift with it. I don't know if you've ever tried to swim uh, across a river or, or swim around an ocean area, but if you don't pay attention to the currents, it's amazing how far it can carry you off. Even the, even the river here, when, when the weather's warm and I try to swim across it, I actually have to look at where the current is going and then pick a place against the current a few hundred yards just to get straight across the river, right? And here's what I've noticed. When you're swimming into a current, it doesn't feel like you're being pushed anywhere. It feels like you're swimming straight, but you're not. Your head comes up and you realize you are far off course. Not a little, but far off course. And I think this is how it goes with you and me, is we are living in a culture that's moving in a certain direction. We see it in what we laugh at. We see it in what we cry over. We see it in what we overreact to and what we underreact to. We see it in what we agree with. Moral drift will transform in our eyes the things that we used to call evil and now have just become normal. I mean, how many times do we say to ourselves, well, that's just, how, that's just the way things are now. I know that's not the way they were in the 50s or the 20s or 100 years ago. or 100. That's just the way they are now. Listen, I'm confronted by this. It will be easy to have dry eyes for a city if we're caught in the same moral drift as that city. This pushes me to repent. I could not get through prepping this thing without just saying, man, Lord, I'm confronted with my level of passion and long-suffering prayer. I'm confronted by just saying, you know what, that's just the way things are here. It's just the way things are going to be. That's a, that's a problem for Habakkuk, but he actually has a bigger problem in our passage today. His big problem is how can God be good and yet evil persist right in front of God? How can that be the case? What gives, right? He's wrestling and embracing at the same time. How to reconcile a good God in an evil world. I mean, it is a common question, but it is not one common to everybody. This is a question that is exclusive to Christianity. That's our, that's our issue. Most world religions will position God differently in such a way that he is smaller, more puny, more inert, and he's not able to really exert sovereign control. So he's just kind of doing the best he can as evil leans back. And man, a lot of times evil just wins, and he's kind of handcuffed, right? Or secular humanism does even worse because it has no answers. Because if you and I began as molecules and have evolved over time to just be luckier molecules as we march our way on to what we call heat death, 
and there is no God, then there is no good. And that means there's no evil. And that means there's nothing noble. It means there's nothing that should be sad. It means there's nothing for you to be heroic over, courageous over. That's even worse. But for Christians, for those who wrestle and those who embrace, there's a Habakkuk in all of us. We are faced with this intersection of an evil world and a powerful God. And to be clear and more accurate, Habakkuk's wrestling, it's not just with tolerance, God's tolerance, but also with his timeline. You could kind of hear it in what he says. How long do I have to witness this? Not just what am I having to look at, but how long do I have to look at this while again you stand by and do nothing? Listen, this is a common refrain we've seen from different people in the Old Testament, probably the new as well if we studied long enough, but Asaph in Psalm 74 says this, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. It's, it's very similar. Psalm 13, King David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is what we want. This is what we really want. We want control of the timeline. I want the the break in the gas pedal when it comes to what God does. Why do we want this? Because we truly believe that we know better. (laughs) We believe that we know better. We, we, We think we have the best timing for the best answers. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're also conflicted, right? Because we also, at times, agree with Garth Brooks, who sings, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. You ever caught yourself doing that? Ever caught yourself looking back and saying, I was praying for something else. Boy, I'm glad I did not get something else, right? Happens all the time. Ever see lottery winners or early draft picks just ruin themselves with a sudden just dump truck of cash coming on them? Why does that happen? It's because they're able to answer their prayers. They have control of the timeline now. They have control of the means. If they want a white tiger, they go out and buy a white tiger. They want three yachts, they can make that happen. But what they find is, is what they thought was the best answer in the best time ends up ruining them. And as much as we could point at that and laugh because it's a caricature, it is a little bit of what we struggle with, don't we? Here's the thing. You and I, we can't see the whole playing field. We're finite creatures praying to an infinite God. We're being called to trust the one who sees history and designs history for his glory. I think one of my favorite quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1953, this was after World War II, and he was commenting on World War II. He says, if God were unkind enough to answer some of our prayers at once and in our way, we should be very impoverished Christians. That's an interesting word, impoverished. We've all been told no. We've all been told no in our prayers before, or maybe even not now. When that happens in real time, don't we mistake it for a bored and deaf God? Maybe an oppressive God, a selfish God? Listen, his delay, his denial, that's meant to reshape you and me. It's it's meant to reform us, as Jones says, to fit us for a fuller place in his kingdom. Habakkuk learns this. We have to learn the same. 
We have to learn the same. I was talking to our, we, we're, we finished our partners class today. We finished our four-week class with potential partners for Legacy Church, and I was able to go into this to some degree. But I got to say again now, I mean, a good example for us as a people of where this has happened, we've prayed for a church facility for over 10 years, closer to 12, right? That's a long time. That's a long time. And God has said no. He's denied us or delayed us. We'll find out, I suppose. Even a few times where we thought it was a yes. <laughs> I mean, we were so sure. This is a yes. Our elders saw it as a yes. Our leadership team saw it as a yes. Our people were excited about it. High fives everywhere. It's a yes. And even at the last minute, God says, no. Uh-uh. Later, we would find out we were preserved the whole time. Saved, really. We would look back on that and say, man, God was really good. We kind of knew what we were getting into, and we really had no, no idea at all what we were getting into. God cared for us. But in the moment, it didn't feel like it. It felt like, felt like God was being inappropriate with us. Because I would drive down the street, and I would see other churches get facilities. Businesses move into structures that I was hoping we would get. Drive down the street and see dying churches of a half a dozen people in a, in a facility that would fit us just right. And I would say to myself, how long, oh Lord, how long will you hide your face from us? Honestly, 10 years? I get this. But how unkind he would be and how impoverished we would be. God has better. Better for us. More reflective of him. He asks us to wait, asks us to trust, asks us to pray, pray more. He'll do as he sees fit. The main idea of a sermon out of a book like this is that is God in charge or not? Honestly. The answer is a resounding yes. Let me just state the fact and we'll unpack why it's the case. God commands history. He commands it and all of its Players in pieces and moments. He steers everything from a subatomic particle all the way to a galaxy, and one's not harder than the other for him. He holds the, the hearts of all kings in his hands. And nothing has happened in history that did not flow through the trenches he dug for it. That means that no moment has ever surprised him, nothing has ever caught him on his heels or frustrated him in the way that we get frustrated by a surprise. Why? He is sovereign. Capital S, sovereign. And this is his glory to be so. This is why Paul tells the Roman church, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Let me tell you this. Any other version of God is unbiblical. And any other version of God is a puny God. Small, weak, unable to even hold the pieces of his own gospel story together. This is what I mean when I say that. In order for you and I to trust a sovereign God, all we have to do is gaze upon a better prophet. A better prophet to come along who would wrestle for us that we would have God's embrace. Jesus on a cross says, why have you left me? Why is your back turned to me? How long, O oh Lord, do you not see the violence? Do you not see the injustice? Do you not see the, the oppression? 
By the way, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. What do you think they were praying for as Jesus was being nailed and lifted up? They were probably praying for what? For him to be pulled right back down, right? For him to be pulled off. That's what I would have prayed for. If I'm with those guys, I'd have thought, listen, guys, we need to pray right now that Jesus gets out of this jam. He's got to get out of this jam. We've got to figure out a way to get him out of here. They probably were struggling with, God, are you in charge or not? But never was God more in control in human history. Never was he more committed to his glory. Never was he more kind, and never were we more impoverished than in that moment. Jesus came for doubting disciples who didn't even know how to pray in that moment. He came for rebellious Jews and wicked Babylonians and well-behaved Americans. And what did he do? He wrestled on the cross. What's the result? God embraces us. You and me. A puny God couldn't do this. An inert and weak God would only be able to sit back and whine and complain about how hard it is to defeat the devil and how limited he is because our actions just aren't very good all the time, right? Waiting on us to make the right decisions. Man, thank God for unanswered prayers. Thank God for the unanswered prayers of Jesus' disciples in that moment. <laughs> thank God Jesus finished his work on the cross in God's timing for God's glory. Thank God he was not unkind to us. Thank God we are not impoverished. I think where we struggle with this, ultimately, in our mind, when we sin, is we say to ourselves, God, you are not good unless I can see good and agree that it's good right there in the moment. And if your answers are not in line with my wisdom, then I declare you not good. That's a sin. That's a sin we have to repent for. It is the same thing as saying, God, you're unkind and you have impoverished me. You stand in the way and you oppress me and I'm better off without you. That's what it says. I mean, is this not why we stop praying altogether? Think about it. Think about it. I mean, probably everyone in the room struggles a little bit with their frequency or depth of prayer life. I've, I've never met anyone that's like, you know, I should write a book on this. I'm really good at it. Trust me. I've never met that person, right? All of us would say, you know, my New Year's resolution, I'd like to pray a little bit better. Why is it that we don't? Why? If it's not because we feel like he's a little bit deaf, a little bit mute, weak, tiny, unkind, we could do it ourselves, so why pray? I think a prayerless life indicates a deeper issue, right? Because if prayer does nothing, I think it reveals what we think about God. I do think this is why people find devastation. I think it's why people deconstruct a lot of times. Because we refuse to submit to a God we cannot totally understand. We want a God we can find all the edges and trace them with a marker and say this is who our God is, contained in these parameters and definitions. We can put our hands around him. We can, we can measure his death. That's what we want. A God who holds mystery to himself for his own glory, that's a little harder, right? That's harder. Friends, it is his kindness to us. That kindness leads you and me to repentance. All week, I've been asking God to help me with my unbelief. Oh, help me with my unbelief. So how do we move forward with this? A, a, a chapter like this. There's some loose, tight little applications, just three or four, and then we're done. Maybe they're helpful. And a couple will probably do a little bit more detail next week. One... God's delays and denials, those are a kindness to you. 
a kindness to you. When he says no or not yet, that's a kindness. What I would love is to grow as a disciple that can metabolize the no's as joyfully as I do the yeses. Isn't that hard? Nobody wants to be told no. Can you find in the cross a gratefulness that God's no was a kindness to you? And if God could be trusted then, he could certainly be trusted now. Friend, listen, if you feel like he's saying no to you right now, rejoice. If you feel like God is telling you not now, celebrate. I mean with every bit as vigor as if he was saying yes. Why? Because he's good. He's good. You can't see the playing field. You're finite. He's infinite. We can trust him. How do we know? Look at the cross. Look what he did. Number two, wrestling doesn't mean God stops embracing you. Yes, we could be honest and unfiltered with our prayers. We just need to be beware of disgusting pride. We don't really catch him dancing in those waters right here very much. Habakkuk prays in a way, however, that makes a lot of us feel uncomfortable. Right? Prophets can do this. David did this. But God's embrace of you and me is not predicated on how our prayers sound or their vernacular, right? I think what we think in our head is if we use the right words, we use the right words rightly in right order over a certain amount of time that it, that it unlocks some cheat code. And that God just comes in and says, well, I wasn't going to do anything, but you did cross the five-minute mark, and you said, Lord, this percentage of words and you did quote these two scriptures, and friend, that's all I needed. And now we're off to the races. We think that that's how he does this. But isn't that why we struggle in lingering in prayer? Because we just run out of King James vocabulary so fast, don't we? At which point we think God walks out of the room. Wrestling with God, it's many things. It's not polished, right? It's agonizing. Sometimes you just don't have any words. You just grunt and groan and cry and give space. And, and yet, as ugly as it can be, God interprets it correctly. Man, he's so good, isn't he? God, he's so good. Third, repeated prayer, it reshapes us, not God. Right? It, it's, not, it's not like we repeat our prayers in the way that we would repeat our order at a busy coffee shop where it's so loud we have to say, no, 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 almond milk, no, 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 almond milk all the time because it's so loud. We want them to understand so that we get what we want. We think sometimes that if we just pray a lot that after the 83rd time, God wakes up because he was sleeping? We woke a sleeping giant because we just pulled the right lever? It's not like that. When we pray for a building or your health or you pray for your child or to have a child, or a new career. More prayers more often does not wake a sleeping God. We're just consistently placing our cares upon him. Every time you pray for something you've already prayed for, it is you stepping to the feet of God and saying, I'm going to give this right back to you. I, it's, I'm having to remind myself more than I'm having to remind you, Lord. You heard me the first time. But Lord, I'm giving you this because I need you to reshape me. I, I don't trust you very much. I'd like to trust you more. I want to rejoice with you that you're in charge of this, that you're building something beautiful, and I'm just a bit piece of it. Four, and the last one, God delays so that we might catch glimpses of his mercy. His mercy. 
when you finally see why God delayed and denied for so long, when you finally see how merciful he has been this whole time, that is a place for worship and thanksgiving. That's a place to just stop whatever you're doing and say, oh, you saved me again. Man, had you given me what I wanted, I would have deserved it, first of all, and I'd be in a bad place right now. Boy, you are good, God. You are good. It's fine to worship the Lord that way. We see his mercy, we worship him, where we shape by him, we grow over and over and over again. Not just personally, but globally we look at this. Globally. God globally delays that we might understand his mercy. What is he globally delaying? His wrath. His wrath. Romans 2, Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a day wrath is coming. Well, how much wrath? All of it. All of it. When will it stop? When it's finished. To the last drop. Wrath is coming. And God's delay of that, that's exhibit A, that he is merciful, that he is kind and thoughtful. He's patient. And he longs for everyone to love him. 2 Peter 3.9. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, if you're here or you're watching online and you are far from God, you wouldn't be able to say, I have a loving relationship with Jesus, like I have affection in my heart for Jesus, and I want to see that affection grow. If that is not you, let me just say, the wrath that is coming was also poured on the Son of God to the last drop as he was on the cross. It's the wrath that was due us. He absorbed it in himself. So for those who trust in Christ, there will be no wrath. It's spent. Gone. No spankings, no hand slaps, no scowls. It's gone. His patience is for you, friend, to repent. If you do not hide and cover yourself with the person of Christ who received the fullness of God's wrath, wrath is coming. His patience has a limit. Wrath will either be spent on Christ or it will be spent on you. What I'm submitting, begging, is that you consider that today. We're going to pray in a moment because we're in the the final stretch here. And I'm going to ask you to meet me midway. And I'm going to pray as if, as if I'm asking the Lord into my life. And if you don't know how to use those words, just, just agree with me. Just pray with me. And then I'm going to want you to come up and tell me afterward, Luke, I, I prayed with you. I prayed with you. I don't, I don't really know what's next. I don't even really, can't even really describe exactly what I just did. Can you help me kind of move through it? And we will. Let's let's wrestle together and let this day be a day of embracing for you. For the rest of us, there's room for us to repent. Prayerlessness, especially if it's a place of bitter pride, just a place of angst against God himself, that requires repentance for us. Or accusations that God's just not kind at all, that requires repentance from us. Or maybe dry eyes of where our city's at and our moral drift that matches it step by step. That requires repentance. There's so so many areas for you and me to repent. In such a quick five verses like that, 